Hello, loyal listeners, and welcome to the 60th episode of Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by RevengeOfTheFans.com. And tonight, as part of our Rage with Nicolas Cage Month, we'll be discussing 1989's Vampire's Kiss. This is a movie that I, Chumpzilla, feel as Pete Cage. And with that being said, I have just one question for you. Am I getting through to you? Hops and box office flops. A place where we can celebrate the underdog films, the bombs, the disasters, the much maligned movies that have drowned in their infamy. So please sit back, grab a beer, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks, and thanks for joining us tonight for the 60th episode of Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by RevengeOfTheFans.com. And tonight, I, Chumpzilla, will be hosting a review of this strange cinematic experiment that is 1989's Vampire's Kiss, a Nick Cage movie that truly launched a thousand memes. I'll amend my previous statement, and I'll say I think this movie is actually more meme-worthy than Face Off. I will accept that this film is more meme-worthy, with the only addition that Face Off is more iconic. I, I would argue that people know the memes from this movie and don't know where they came from. No, that that's fair. I uh, That is completely fair. So, so to but, your point, I think Face Off is more recognizable but, uh, to the viewer, but I think people don't, under, uh, or don't understand how much material was mined from this movie. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, because it, it was a, basically an art house flick that uh, not a lot of people saw. Definitely a shithouse. I mean, art house flick. What? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. And joining me, as always, the thunderous wizard, calling in from his Manhattan penthouse where he sleeps under an overturned chase lounge. I am a vampire. I am a vampire. I am a vampire. Motherfucker, I was going to do something similar. Shit. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Just do it. Yep, yep. That's taken. And just back from dry humping vampires and eating bugs is none other than Captain Cash. I'm a podcaster! I'm a podcaster! I'm a podcaster! Doesn't doesn't have the same ring. I know, it's not the same. It's not the right number of syllables. Damn it. Yeah. Well, regardless, gentlemen, give us those shameless social media plugs. Uh, you can find me when I'm not underneath my leather couch, avoiding the sun, which I did prior to even seeing this movie anyways, at uh, writertlk on Twitter. You can find the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hops and B.O. Flops, Captain Cash. You can find me as C-A-P-T-C-A-S-H on most of your social media, where I'll ingest cockroaches. No, I fucking won't. I'm not Nick Cage. It was actually a water bug, according to uh, Nick Cage. And Motherfucker, a, I saw what I saw on screen. Yeah, well, as a, uh, you know, a transplanted southerner, or a southern, whatever, as a carpetbagger, I think that's the right term. That's right. Um, yeah. I, I would say that the uh, the folks down here would call that a palmetto bug. Yes, a palmetto bug. Certainly, it's just a so, cockroach. It was real. Yeah. And animal rights groups were not pleased. Yeah. Fun fact: when you have one of those guys, you have one. Okay. They're not like the New York cockroaches, where if you see one of those little guys, you have a thousand. So that's the only the only I guess silver lining there. They're still big. They're gross. They fly. Um. But, Listen, uh, yeah. whatever you need to tell yourself to sleep at night, buddy. Yeah, I spend a lot of money on pest control. So anyway, 
And uh, you can now find me, Chumpzilla, at Chumpzilla8 on Twitter. Hit me up and make me regret signing up for this Twitter thing. Let the record show you could save some money on pest control if you just hired me to eat the cockroaches in your house. It'd be fine. I, I think you could probably save some money if you just hired Nick Cage to do it. Because I don't know. I, this- I feel like he'd do it for a premium. Uh, I don't know. He did it pretty cheap on this movie. So <laughs> They did everything pretty cheap on this movie. Yeah. It's about 20 grand a cockroach. Okay. Um, yeah. So that brings us to the next order of business, which is beer. And for tonight's pod, you're going to need the- a lot of it. <laughs> yep. And I've selected the aptly named Bat Squatch. Yeah. From uh, Rogue Brewing out in, I think this, this guy's right out of Portland, right? Mm, I, you know what? I don't know. Tell us. Mm, I'm looking uh, Newport, Oregon, but uh, yeah, out in Oregon, Rogue. You know, Dead Guy Ale. Everybody knows these guys, but anyway. So this is kind of a funky thing here, but uh, yeah, it's like the can is awesome. The can art is this giant bat Sasquatch hybrid thing, and it's like purple and tealish and, and uh, greenish hues. It's awesome. Uh, you'll see it on the social. It's pretty cool, and the beer is not bad. Um, it's a tropical ipa and it checks in at a uh, respectable 6.7 abv and i'll crack one right now and i will join you cheers gentlemen cheers and uh yeah as you said captain cash these beverages will come in handy while you're watching this movie uh it also uh, pairs nicely with cockroaches and pigeons Ooh. so fun fact uh how the old new york special yes mm-hmm. So, gentlemen, how many beers did it take you to get through this movie, Captain Cash? Listen, I we talk about movies being six-beer movies in a fun way. Like, Cats is absolutely a six-beer movie, and you can have a great time. This is one of those movies where it is six beers, and it is a struggle. It is you – need, you need to drink for this. You sound as if you didn't enjoy this film. I did not. Yeah. Enjoy this film. I just I couldn't well, get into it. I tried, and uh, I like this is we'll we'll get there because this is cage at cage. But there is just nothing for me to latch onto to have a good time with this. I, okay, I that's really an interesting take. Enjoyed this. I would say it's like two to three beers. Uh, it's dark material for sure. It's not a comedy, which is sort of what it was billed as. But, yeah, it's but, like it's like the darkest comedy. Possible. Yeah, it's short of just complete and utter uh, nihilism. It uh, it's it takes what would be super depressing material because of its uh, just jaded and uh, worldview, uh, and it makes it fun because Nicolas Cage just goes for it in every single scene, and his performance uh, is why I liked it so much, and why I didn't like oh. I, you know, feel like I had to drink a bunch of beers throughout it. I just was having a blast watching him go full on Nick Cage. Look, that's fair, and I'm not saying that you know that you can't enjoy it for Cage's performance, which is completely over the top. I'm only saying that this was billed as a comedy. It plays everything deadly serious straight, <laughs> and there is like you have to. Find the humor in this for yourself. That's all well, I'm saying. Well, there's it's not really humor in the sense that there's straightforward jokes. That is fair. And 
there is some slapstick aspects of Cage's physical performance, mm. but it's not necessarily played for laughs. No, at um, no point is it played for laughs. But it is melodramatic, and there is some humor in some of the situations. It's kind of like a really bad episode of Seinfeld. Like the uh, whole setup. He, he's very Kramer-esque. In fact, his physical comedy. That's who I immediately thought of yeah. was Michael Richards. I can see that. Yeah. So, but uh, just to get back to the beer count for me, it's easily a six beer movie. And since you mentioned, <laughs> um, you mentioned Cats, Captain Cash. To me, I viewed this movie the same way as Cats. It was sort of like watching a train wreck. Like it was just like, wow, this is just weird. I mean, like I said, this movie is just perplexing and it's very melodramatic in its tone. And, you know, to your point, Mr. Wizard, Nick Cage is basically on another plane of existence in this performance. It's just way out there and over the top and and, and not ways that we normally think about being over the top in terms of, of hammy and tearing up the scenery or chewing up the scenery. It's it's just he makes a lot of weird decisions. And we find out later that there were conscious decisions and I that his he... performance is it's something it's it's definitely something. I can't tell what I, it is, though. I cannot doubt that Nicolas Cage had some very specific ideas about what he wanted to do, committed to them 120%. I just don't agree that they work. That's where well, we that's differ, a fair point. I think they did work. And I think the film is better for all of them. Because I think the movie is relatively so, weak in doing what it's trying to do without him. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's 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 move on. Uh, keep things moving here. Uh, the tale of the tape, guys. Vampire's Kiss was released in the summer of 1989, and as we discussed on the UHF pod, that was a killer summer for movies. So this came out against Batman, uh, another Bat movie. <laughs> yeah, okay. Same month. Definitely. Yeah, same yeah. month. Definitely doesn't <laughs> hold up against that one. That that's kind of a tough. Uh, that's a tough matchup. And Ghostbusters two, Lethal Weapon two. The Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and, of course, UHF, uh, which I would say is probably the closest thing to competition this movie would have had out of that bunch. <laughs> which also I don't know why you... blew this out of the water. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Apparently there wasn't enough money for both Weird Al and Nick Cage, and Weird Al won that battle. Weird. Who would have thought Weird Al would have outperformed the guy that won a Best uh, Actor Oscar? Hmm. I don't know why you don't That's release right. this in, like, an October. Like, this is clearly, I mean, yes. at least lean into the fact that this is a sort of a vampire movie and release it around Halloween. M much like the thing needed to come out in the winter. This movie had exactly no being released in the summer period. I, I actually think even billing it as a vampire movie hurts the movie because it's clearly not that. And it is, this, man's, it is about a man's slow descent to hell. This yeah. is a vampire movie in the same way that Joker was a superhero movie. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I have a couple one-sentence descriptions, but I'll just share this one now. This is like if you took Nicholson's Joker and put him in Phoenix's Joker. And that's <laughs> the energy you get from the guy yeah. who's literally going insane and having a fucking incredible time doing it. Yeah. Well, to say this movie was poorly received would be an understatement. It netted just seven hundred and twenty-five thousand one hundred and thirty-one American dollars on a budget of about two million. Thirty-one dollars. I like how they to the penny. 
<laughs> That's what happens when you when you net under a million. It's a lot easier to count the dollars when. <laughs> yeah. Um, fun fact: only forty thousand dollars of that two million dollar budget actually went to the star, Nicolas Cage. He bought a sports car with it that he apparently had for a long time because on the director's commentary of this movie, he still had it, which was ten years later. Yeah. Surprised he didn't pawn that one off. But was, uh, I think that was no, before his, his the, money uh, troubles didn't happen until like the mid 2000s. I'm just saying, so like 99. That's even cooler okay. than that's even cooler than John Voight's LeBaron. I mean, if you got mm. Nick Cage's Vampire's Kiss Porsche, that would be pretty cool with the with the plastic teeth. Count me in, dude. Yeah, exactly. Wait, that's that's that actually works really well with with John Voight's uh, LeBaron. There's a teeth thing in there. Yeah, it's his pencil. Get the bite marks. The pencil. Yeah. Okay, so. The movie was directed by first-time director Robert Bierman and written by Joseph Minion of After Hours fame, which was directed by Scorsese. And the movie effectively killed both of their Hollywood careers. Bierman's most notable post-kiss work has been directing episodes of The Walking Dead, and Minion went on to write some independent films and and maybe direct some of it. Uh, Nothing really of uh, note, except it is fun to point out that he considers this movie, along with After Hours and uh, his independent film Trafficking, as a trilogy he calls the Anxiety Trilogy. Yeah, and Trafficking, I guess they couldn't get anybody to buy it. He was literally like going to put it up on Vimeo and release it on his own. Um, Yeah, it's interesting to see that you know, these guys really were passionate about making this movie. In fact, Minion wanted to direct originally, uh, but was too stressed out to do it. So they brought in Robert Bierman. It's a, it, it was a passion project. He'd written it. It's, I mean, you'll get to it, but uh, he had trouble, you know, getting that uh, another movie made. And basically like this was him being super depressed, sitting in a hotel room on vacation and this was like his last shot at the winter. Yeah. I mean, he was still relatively riding high after After Hours. That was a, a, a pretty big deal um, for a young screenwriter for, you know, his first big script. I don't know how young he was at the time. Because I shouldn't call him young. It was a big deal for him because that was his first big script. And, you know, he had a new world was opened up to him. But, yeah, I think I've mentioned before, this movie is best looked at through the lens of metaphor. And by that, I mean, this movie is not meant to be taken literally at all. Uh, Minion was experiencing a rough period in his life, professionally and personally, when he wrote it. Basically, uh, as you said, Mr. Wizard, he was in a funk after writing After Hours and being a moody dickhead. His girlfriend at the time, an eventual Vampire's Kiss producer, uh, Barbara Zitwer, left him in Barbados, where they were on vacation together, to write the script alone because he was being a miserable prick, and she thought that he needed the catharsis of birthing something creative to get over his funk. Okay, so according to Minion, it was a chance encounter with a stranger at the hotel bar that inspired him to write a low budget horror movie. So that's how this started in his head. He's like, you know what? I'm in this creative funk. I can't I can't write anything for whatever reason. Some kind of like depression slash writer's block. He's like this talking to this guy about horror movies. He's like, that's it. I'll make a write. That is I'll write a horror movie. Listen, say what you want. A movie this bad doesn't happen because they were aiming for the middle of the road. A movie this insane only happens because everybody was fucking swinging for the fences. Yeah. You you only strike out this hard when you're trying. Yeah. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> the end result 
is the camp classic that has literally spawned a thousand memes. And at its heart, this movie is about a delusional man desperately attempting to develop meaningful relationships in his life and failing to do so because he's emotionally unavailable and disconnected from reality. Again, metaphor, this is a vampire movie only in the sense that it's about emotional vampires. Um, I can expand on that later. Uh, the critics were not kind to this movie, although it has found a cult following. It was panned upon its initial release and currently holds scores of 61% on Rotten Tomatoes and 31 on Metacritic. And I'll be honest, folks, it's not a good movie, but I will say 61 percent. I think that's 61 percent. Wow. I think that's the cult influence. I think that's people coming back and I watching it again. That's reviewing. a lot of retrospective reviews. I think. Yeah. There is no way. It, uh, wow. If you read the reviews for this movie, the period reviews for this movie, they are brutal. Yeah, generally when we do a movie this old, there's not that many reviews to pull from uh, Rotten Tomatoes. But when a movie like this finds an audience and, and becomes this thing that is now like studied and discussed, like, is Nicolas Cage a good actor? We should watch this, and this is, a, this is the thing. Which is kind of annoying, because Nicolas Cage is in a lot of good movies, and Nicolas Cage is a good actor. And using one film as the barometer for that is silly. He's been nominated for two Oscars and won one. Um, Look, Nick Cage is a good actor. No one's trying to dispute that. Yeah. He makes a lot of decisions in this film which are not good. Well, I think that's a very Nick Cage thing, though, because he's an actor that likes to make strange decisions and run with them. That's part of his shtick. He takes it very seriously. And, yeah, I think sometimes it doesn't work. Like, for example, we all joke about his accent in Con Air. You know that's Nick Cage. In this? Right. It's the same thing. It's just like he makes a decision and he sticks with it. And and when you hire Nick Cage for a movie, that's what you get. You know what you're signing up for. It's like him and Johnny Depp. After reading more, like, especially things he said about this movie, I get what he was going for with that accent. It's trying to make his character seem like smarter than he is. He speaks with yeah. his faux intellectual accent, which I guess yeah. he picked up from his father, who was like a literary professor. And it makes sense because a lot of the thing is like, oh, he and these other hoity-toity guys who run this company are actually a bunch of useless assholes. They don't do anything. They sit around all day and they entertain themselves by demeaning the people that work beneath them. Yeah, he, he was going for some weird, vaguely British, mid-Atlantic accent, basically because he wanted to come off like a smarmy dickhead. Are we going to talk, like, let's talk about the accent then, because <laughs> this is the thing that, like, it's it's not a mid-Atlantic accent. A mid-Atlantic accent sounds kind of like this, like the old-timey radio things, and it's not that. It's this no. weird, like, you, you know, uh, so what I'm saying is that this film had some decisions that were... He sounds like the fucking comic book guy from Simpsons. And I, I don't know where that comes from. Humans don't talk like that. It's poorly executed, but that's what he was trying to do. Which is fine, but the times where he lets the mask slip, because there are occasions where the accent goes away, especially when he's particularly emotive. I, I think that's supposed to be intentional. Again, I That's get that it's supposed to be intentional. He, 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 he has some weird inflections just in general. This movie. There's some lines in this movie he delivers in an absolutely bizarre fashion, absent of the accent, but in another totally alien accent altogether. Like, And I think that's part of, I think to Mr. Wizard's point, I think that's part of his 
an example of him losing control at times. So that's supposed to tell us as an audience when he has lost self-control, he's no longer putting on his, his front. He's slipping. Right, right. I, I get that. But that's the problem. There's never a, a uh-huh. deliberate yeah. no, there's never a deliberate mask slip where you go, Oh, it's all a thing he's been putting on. You they're they're not helping you with that. You have to infer it and you have to infer it in the nicest possible way to believe it. Yeah, I'll say that uh, this movie has a lot of parallels, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, as we get to, to the plot and whatnot. Uh, to, <clears throat> this movie compares very favorably to American Psycho, and I think that movie definitely does a better job of showing Patrick Bateman slipping in and out of that. It's more, you see it on screen, it's more like, aha, now he's, he's out of his gourd. Here, it's just kind of, you're not really sure, because Nick Cage is so crazy the whole time. <laughs> Exactly. He's he's <laughs> always weird. Yeah. Like yeah. you actually wouldn't believe this guy was employed in such Anywhere. a position of prominence because right, he's yeah. really strange. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a strange movie. But you know, so to keep moving here, let's go to the cast. I mean, there were people in this movie other than Nicolas Cage. Who all went on to have careers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty small movie, it's not a huge cast, but it's, most of these people yeah, are it's still a lot of actors. extras because it's New York. So it's yeah, and those weren't even extras; they were just filming out. It's the really shot in like three locations. Yeah, um, so we've got Nick. I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> oh yes, okay, I know. Uh, I guess that was pretty horny, uh, pretty uh, keyed up from being with the girl right before. I was drunk too. Uh, that was it. Uh, I'd had a little to drink. Cage as neurotic literary agent and part-time vampire Peter Lowe. You've also got Jennifer Flashdance Beals as Rachel, the sexy lady vampire. You've got Maria Conchita, the cop from Predator 2, Alonzo, as Peter's abused secretary, Alva. Also the woman from Running Man. Yes, also the woman from Running Man. Yes. And you've also got Elizabeth Ashley as Peter's therapist, real and imagined, Dr. Glazer. And Cassie Lemons as Jackie, the girlfriend that Peter dumps for the bat. <laughs> Alva, there you are. Wow. Yeah. Those, so that's some of the best parts of the movie. Honestly, his abuse of his secretary, that stuff is so weird. That's the closest thing to humor. That's almost funny. It's so awful. It, it would that like his over the top thing takes what would be a very difficult movie to watch. And it, and you, it makes it tolerable. Like he's a horrible person throughout the entire movie but if he wasn't doing it in this way like i would probably hate this movie yeah i back to my emotional vampires thing like he is being his energy is being sucked by the vampire lover that he's imagining that's causing him pain and and you know you see it in the movie when he shows up and he's like hung over at work basically his energy his sanity yeah and that's and that's causing him to then, in fact, feed off of Alva. Like he he torments her, and you know, at the point where she's depressed, where she's at home calling in sick, not coming into work because he's sucking energy from her. Yes, you know, it's a chain reaction. He's yeah. feeding like, this is his not a, indulgences. Yeah, this movie again, it's a metaphor through and through, um, not meant to be taken not meant to be taken literally. Um, it's not a dumb movie. It's just really freaking weird. Um, it borders on theater of the absurd. It really does. In my yeah, it does. And I'm yes. sure, you know, he's caught a lot of shit over the years for 
this and, and, and other things. And they've taken like portions of this movie out of context. Like, oh, look how stupid he is. You can't do, you have to watch this whole movie. Yeah. You can't just well, take a could, scene and be like, oh, this is so funny. He's so terrible at acting. You could do the same thing with Christian Bale in American Psycho. If you didn't know what that movie is and hadn't seen it, and you just pull some of his overreacting, like when he's talking about Huey Lewis and you know, giving the music reviews. Yeah. Like yeah. if you just see that, you'd be like, what is this garbage? Who is this guy? What a clown. Like it's really stylized. It's like melodramatic and over the top and, and stupid. But in the context of the movie, it's like, oh, it's creepy. You know, it makes perfect sense. It it's just it's a it's a lot of choices. I give it that. There <laughs> were choices made. So nothing okay. about this movie says we weren't trying. Well, you're with okay. my wife because she hated this movie, and I was thoroughly entertained. Yeah, I, I can see this movie being very polarizing. She frankly. never watches any of these movies we do. And she's like, okay, I'll watch this one. And she's like, I can't believe I watched that one. This was not the movie to do that. Yeah, that was this bad no, call. Maybe, maybe the Ghost in the Darkness would have been a better like jumping off point. Like, this is a really... I mean, uh, almost anything else. Yeah. Not Pluto Nash. No, that would have no, been worse. No, that would have been worse. The, but, listen, Pluto Nash reeks of we're not trying. This is... We've tried much too hard. Yeah. So... <clears throat> One-line descriptions. Uh, IMDb describes this movie as such. After an encounter with a neckbiter, a publishing executive thinks he's turning into a vampire. See, I don't even think that description's correct. I, yeah, I really think that because sells the movie short. Whatever the girl's name is, I, I forget. Uh, is it Rachel? Rachel. Rachel. Neckbiter? Yeah. She's Flash like dance. some girl who was an unre- like didn't reciprocate his love from years before. And he keeps Is seeing it? her around. Yeah, because she's like from high school. She says that to him in the club. Like he is school, what he right? wants. Uh-huh. Like this girl that said no to him and beat him down emotionally. He like keeps going back to this. And in reality, nothing will, will satisfy him because he's just, uh, he's too far gone, it would seem. Right? Yeah. We call that an incel, kids. Don't be an incel. Nah, we're not going there. Anyway, my my one sentence description. We've kind of talked through it, but I don't have a better one. And it is this. What if Patrick from Psycho was in fact Renfield? <laughs> Boo. Really? Well, because he yeah. intentionally channels Nosferatu. So he is still thinking he's count dracula the hand yeah, but the, the hand gestures the walk through the club he is yeah. he is uh, mirroring the movements of the actor from nosferatu listen which, I which you also that, get but... a clip of in the movie i mean they, they yeah. nod to it pretty heavily yes. yeah which again i think I... is great because it shows you that he's miming what he's seeing it's not organic he's he's again putting on a front it, it's kind of one of the nods to the fact that, hey, it's not real. He's It's in his head. Yeah. Which is all a Renfield thing. He's all he's very servile to another vampire. He's eating bugs. He's weird. He's creepy. And just, But he's also completely fucking insane. So American Fair. Psycho, but Renfield. Fair. All right. What you got? A young Patrick Bateman knelt down, staring longingly at the grave 
of the father he never knew. And, not to spoil anything in this movie, but it's perfectly conceivable that Lo has a child somewhere out there in the in the cinema universe. I, I yeah, that's that's possible. This I, could be a American cycle um, prequel. Uh, prequel, uh, yeah. Yeah, that like listen, the New York setting, the absolute psychosis. It's really yeah. hard not to draw parallels with a thing that came out what seven to eight years later it's kind of like what we're doing what we did with cutthroat island and pirates of the caribbean where how does a movie that comes out several years before the other movie rip off the good version like this is the bad version of american psycho yeah i mean i think they hit a lot of the same beats and there's some of the visuals that that are similar between the two movies um and i think you mentioned this before the pod mr wizard that uh, was it Brett Easton Ellison that uh, wrote the book American Psycho that became the movie? Has basically admitted that he took some inspiration from this movie. Christian Bale too took inspiration. From Christian Bale, the way like Cage played this. Now, obviously, he tempers it, uh, but some sort of the uh, bizarre exuberance, like in the Hip to Be Square, Huey Lewis in the News four scene, like. That is uh, evokes a bit of what Cage does in this movie. Well, and uh, yeah, I think also the statement on yuppie culture is also very strong. Yes, mm. in yeah. both movies, you know, in a negative way, like the indictment the, of yuppie culture. Yeah, the yeah. acceptance of Cage's behavior and the fact that everyone kind of laughs it off and no one takes it seriously, and he's basically a troubled man who needs help. But everybody's like, ah, you're fine. You're free, white, and 21. What's the worry about? And he's about? reaching out for help, really, in that scene. Because he's when they begin laughing, he's like, oh, it's acceptable to laugh at this. Like, this isn't something we should be laughing about, but here we are. It's very clear that he understands, the character understands that there's a problem. He's seeing a therapist. He knows he's unwell. There's a mm. lot of smart but things he's, about this movie, I think. I mean, He's like, unable uh, to do anything about it. He's, he's unable to control it. And his therapist really isn't helping him. She's also kind of just uh, patronizing him. Alva's mom. And assuring him. Blaming oh, the Alva's mom. Yeah, uh, that's, that was brutal. They, well, we'll get into that when yeah. we start to talk about plot yeah. stuff. But so, yeah, man. Oh, so, hey, I've got to give my uh, one-line description here just for, you know, completion's sake. So here's mine. Nick Cage turns in a stunningly bizarre performance as a lonely, neurotic New Yorker looking for love in all the wrong places in a vampire movie that seems to have been written by Woody Allen and directed by a John Carpenter wannabe. And I think that gets to the heart of why this movie didn't work for me, is that there was no clear vision. We have talked about how Mr. Beard did not work after this. This is one of those movies that you can kind of lay at the feet of the director and go, Look, dude, what was the plan? Because you got about seven different people doing a lot of different things. The cinematography is doing one thing. The score is doing one thing. Nick Cage is off in a different fucking movie. Hold on. that's The score is fantastic. No, again, I'm not saying the score is bad. I'm just saying that what the score is communicating is not what I'm seeing on the screen. The score in this movie is very atmospheric at times. It's very needle droppy at times. It is excellent. And they outsourced it to, I forget what country, to save money. And it is really oh. friggin' good. 
Europe. Yeah, yeah. They, they they got some Eastern like former Soviet bloc country to do the uh, to do the orchestral work because it was cheaper. They were basically uh, out of money. Yeah, I'm I, sorry. I think it was, I think it was like Bulgaria or Hungary or something. Yeah. But but eighty nine, it was part of the Soviet bloc. Right. So it's but it's fantastic. Like I love the soundtrack for this. Like it's not like super memorable, but it works in a. It's a horror movie soundtrack. That's the thing. It, it's like an old school, like vampire movie style soundtrack. Again, it adds to the atmosphere of the movie. It's part of the metaphor, and I'm like, this is brilliant. And you know, that's what you're get, That's what I'm getting at. This, yeah. The score is absolutely a vampire movie, and this is not that. This has the veneer of a vampire movie, but this really is like, as we've said, it's a metaphor. Well, it is. Yes. The, the horror of the movie is the horror of reality. It's a yes. person being swallowed up by real life and not being able to cope with the challenges of real life. He doesn't want to be alone. He's living in a city that is uh, far beyond like his capacity, and it's clo- everything is closing in on him. Even the way the director shoots the city, it, it, it goes from being like a blur in the background of the doctor's office to like coming more and more into focus. Like No matter how hard he tries, he's not going to be able to outrun whatever's troubling him. It's coming. I will add, you don't get opening credits in movies anymore like you did in this one where you just get the shots of the city and it goes on for entirely too long. It's just names flashing up. They don't do that anymore. That like, I, I had like a nostalgia boner. I remember when movies used to start like this, they start with a slow credit roll with just a bunch of, you know, shots of background stuff. Well, that could or, also uh, be you know, because you were having hot yogurt poured on your feet as you watched the opening credits of this movie. And wait, wait, hold on. You guys didn't pour hot yogurt over your feet while you watched this? Because right, that's Captain, the only way to watch this Captain movie. Captain Cash apparently didn't. So, Listen, I, I will have a foot bath prepared of hot yogurt for any other Nick Cage film I'm about to watch. Uh, and I'm... I'm Mostly certain it's going to improve the experience. We'll get to that later, but I, I have some questions about that. Hold your suspense, Just, listeners. I've <laughs> got some hot yogurt questions coming up. But I think the core storyline here, and let's see if I can do this in a minute, Mr. Wizard, time me. But basically, Nicolas Cage's character uh, has a girlfriend at the beginning of the movie, and they get interrupted mid-coitus by a bat. And after that, he becomes somewhat distant from her uh, following this sexual encounter with this other woman. So he basically starts to distance himself from his his girlfriend for this vampire lady. And he's talked to his therapist about it, but even he's not he becomes increasingly distant and stops communicating truthfully with his therapist. Meanwhile, he continues to see this bat lady, or at least that's what's on his mind. It affects his career professionally because he begins to become more abusive towards his secretary all uh, in wildly bizarre fashion, right? And he recognizes some of these things. He tries to make things right with her, but he's completely inappropriate with her. Um, and he, he clearly, throughout the movie, begins to lose his grip on reality as he begins to see himself as a vampire. His behavior gets exceedingly weird. His Weirder than it already is. Already is, right? His, co- his co-workers already are commenting that he's so eccentric. Um, it, it does come to a bit of a head when he 
basically, and, and he's, he, he spurns his girlfriend and he's very upset about that. Cause she basically tells him to fuck off. Cause he tries to reconcile with her and he stands her up. So right. Yeah. And he stands her up again for the vampire lady. He then has this, this big confrontation with all the, where he traps her in the basement of their building. He presumably rapes her. It's a little, it's implied, but it's a little weird. That's a really he weird thing. He later says, hey, I raped somebody, though. So I, I'm right, treating yeah. that at face value. Right. It's, 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 it's strange. That scene is strange. But as part of his psychosis, he also starts to develop a, a death wish. He becomes quasi-suicidal. He oh, I'm not sure quasi. He, he, he puts a gun in his mouth at one point. Right, he begs Alva to kill him. She won't do it. He sticks the gun in his mouth, fires blanks. Technically, blanks that that might have still killed him. Um, yeah, that that would have hurt you at least a little. Just uh, to but, interject, Nicholas Cage wanted to use real blanks, and like, uh, no, that no, no, would no, no, probably that, kill you. Like, yeah, we have yeah. to use a prop gun, and he's like, fine, fine, yeah. And at that point, he he basically has his complete mental break, and he's off the deep end. He makes it to the club. He confronts his vampire lover who in reality is not a vampire lover it's somebody from his past that doesn't recognize him and that really sends him off the deep end he goes and murders some some lady and by uh, biting her by biting her uh, 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 yeah apparently is that real too you don't really know frankly you don't really know but you see the blood blood. well no but you see newspapers that say disco death so he killed you know, like him. are the newspapers real? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I think it's all up for interpretation. But yeah, I think it's implied that he actually did it. Um, it's implied. And also he, he says in his mind, "And I killed this lady." It, it, and he raped the lady, but you don't really know if you saw it or not. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, yeah. he's an unreal. He's an unreliable narrator. But yeah, in, in the end, he you know is confronted by all of his brother and killed. And has dying visions of his vampire lover welcoming him to, you know, the other side. Yeah, it's a weird ride. And, I, 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 you know, it's dark. It's dark. It covers a lot of disturbing subjects. Some are still very relevant today, frankly. The whole, the whole sexual harassment rape thing, the way the conversations that Alva has with her mother about her, her feeling unsafe at work, that's real. Like that's something that women deal with every day. And that's one of the best examples of it I've ever seen in popular media. That's a real conversation people have to have. And it, it, and I think a big part of the population doesn't realize that kind of stuff goes on. So that's where I'll get a little political with it. The victim blaming that happens with Alma's mo- mother with, you know, hey, you need this job and you got to go like that. That's real brutal. And it gets real glossed over. Now, again, this was made in the late 80s, and it's a different nope. world, but no, God but that's a legit. That's a legit thing. And I thought there was a lot of things about this movie that was... Uh, it, it was it was not a, uh, a stupid movie. I mean, you know, maybe some of the, the way it's shot or... But it, it's, it's a biting commentary. Uh, the writer was obviously someone who, was, who had a pretty negative worldview at the time, but he's not... He's not writing Fuck you that, for that biting pun. That aren't... Yeah. No, it's very uh, yeah. cynical. It's very cynical. He's not cynical. writing things that don't actually exist within the world, right? Like, there is a very vapid nature to casually hooking up and not developing real relationships with people. And you see that as being a huge problem still today, even more so because people don't 
technically meet a lot of times, right? They, they cycle from person to person or they engage in relationships with people they've never met. And everybody's struggling to find themselves because the world can be pretty confusing and weird. And I think this movie does a nice job with a lot of those things. I'm sorry, but every sexy lady vampire I've ever dry humped off a of Tinder has never complained. Uh, that, I, <laughs> Damn it, I, I didn't have a follow-up there. I can't uh, beat that. Dang it. What? what did, that just no, no, that's character. crooked. But in that's making him crooked. a villain from the very beginning of the movie, it in no way makes you try to feel bad for this person, which that's a very delicate line when you're exploring the fragility of the human psyche, right? You yeah. don't and, feel bad for him, ever. And I think a lot of that no. is owed to Cage's performance. Cage at no point attempts to be sympathetic or anything other than full-on fucking creepy. Yeah. I think he understood he was the villain of the film. Yes. And yeah, he more played so it that way. than the producers. Uh, who were who didn't like what he was doing? No, they had big yeah, problems. I think they had, they had big questions. So Which behind the scenes, they were like, "What are you doing with this guy? This is this is crazy." The accent, they're like, "Whoa, what is he doing? Like he sounds deranged." And they're like, "No, no, it's cool. It's cool." He it's might no purpose. It's yeah, what we want. He supposed to he, again. None of this is is wrong, right? Like. He's supposed to sound deranged. You're not supposed to like him. I still don't think it works. Like, this is one of those things where if, you know, he had someone to bounce, like, I've got these ideas for how to make this guy unlikable. I still don't think you land on weird accent from nowhere. But Well, yeah, I, I think he's a young guy. He's 22 making this movie. I think 22, 23. 23 yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Way to go, Nick Cage. He, he and, looks significantly older than that. He yeah. always looked kind of old, though. I think, I don't know what it is. Uh, obviously, it's the hairline haircut. after a while, but the haircut, yeah. But he also but, looks yeah, a lot, almost exactly like he looks in Face Off. Yeah, kind of. You know, he, he might be an actual vampire. I don't. Between him and Paul Rudd, I'm not sure they've aged. Listen, some dudes sprint to forty and just stay there. I, I just don't think, like you know, we're talking about we've mentioned reference movies that are stronger in doing very similar things to this movie. Like I brought up Joker with Phoenix. I think it's a better movie than this. Uh, and it's doing very similar things. We brought up American yeah, Psycho. It, we think it it's does, a better movie. It does, I think those movies both do similar things. Yeah, That's an excellent no, point. Uh, like, but the backbone this, of this movie, the, same... the backbone of this movie is weaker. So without the, the, the crazy, manic, insane, cartoonish performance, I just don't think it's particularly watchable. Oh, agreed. Like, so, again, Cage is the only thing that makes watching this movie worth your time, but it still doesn't work. Okay, let me bounce this off you gentlemen. Captain Cash, Mr. Wizard, let me know what you think here. Here's a little, little side conversation with Uncle Chumpzilla. Is this movie basically leaving Las Vegas, but instead of booze, it's vampires? Uh, I mean, because he's, I, he's I, always excelled my, playing characters who are... Uh, Matchstick Men's another good example, right? Death Seekers. One. He's uh, good at Death Seekers. Yeah, people who are drowning in their own misery. Or yeah, like. but, but my point is, I think I think part of the problem with this movie 
versus those other movies like American Psycho and Joker is that Joker might be the closest comparison because the whole quasi superhero angle, but the whole backbone comment bringing the vampire thing instead of being the vampire who was booze the movie's much more serious and just as dark he still goes you know, he still puts a gun in his mouth and rapes people and his life spirals out of control but in this movie the inspiration for the downward spirals is fictitious vampire fantasy i think the so I, the stakes in leaving las vegas are much more tangible right it's a guy who's riding high and loses everything and that is the opening of the movie uh right this his wife leaves him He's basically lost it all, and he's like, that's it for me. Here, you don't even know why he's really miserable. You get a sense that he has a uh, he hates women. You don't really know why. Well, yeah, I think he, I mean, he clearly struggles to connect. Yeah, well. Uh, in society. That's his, that, that's his biggest thing. I just like, don't he, think there's he, a strong hook for his with other human beings. psychoses as there is in the other movies. No, no, but my, yeah, I guess my point is the stand-in for that becomes this vampire fantasy. The ultimate problem with this film is there's not a clear vision for what the metaphor really is. So if you use booze as a thing, as the vampire metaphor, that doesn't really work because no, leaving Las Vegas is a coherent film. Whereas this, there's a lot of people making decisions and really committing to those decisions, but there's no vision overall. I disagree. I think this movie is very stylized, and I I think it has a vision. I think it's weird, but I think it has a vision. I think it is individually stylized. There were about seven different people, and again, from all different stages, from the acting to the cinematography to the, 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 um, the score, which we've already talked about. Everybody made choices. But they made them independent of the director, and the director just kind of went, mm, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, he is a first-time uh, director. I think there are seams of that that show. And, That's fair. That's a fair know, point. Obviously, I'm a fan of the performance, but goes to also say this movie doesn't get made without Nicolas Cage. Yep. So No, hard, hard to agree. Uh, this movie's not watchable without Nicolas Cage. He, he was a rising star. The other people that I, I'm sure you'll discuss who were considered could not have done what he does here. Like, not even close. They couldn't. In particular, Judd Nelson, who was cast after he dropped out of the role originally because his agent's like, you can't do this movie. But that's yeah, why I like Nicolas Cage because he's like, you know what? I can do this movie. I want to do something weird. And I just made a safe movie. Let me have a freedom, creative freedom to like yeah. just be Nicolas Cage. Quick aside here because we've already stumbled into the general impressions. But, yeah, so Nick Cage really wanted to do this movie because – they basically told him, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's, you have free reign. The character is yours. Go nuts with it. And he's like, oh, oh, this is great. You're giving me a blank canvas. I can go crazy. But his agent was like, this movie's garbage. Don't touch this script. Stay far, far away from it. I, I, I believe they had like send like covert agents to sneak onto the set of Moonstruck and like try to woo Nicolas Cage to come back. Because the, his agent like wasn't even returning the calls anymore after the first time he dropped out. So anyway, so so moving on here, um, I got a couple of questions. Is this Pete Cage? I know this is very early in his career, but I think this is the pure stuff. Do you guys agree? It's pure, unfiltered, unfettered, wonderful, glorious Cage. I, it's not his best performance, not even close, uh, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. 
And I yeah. do, I, I think there's something to be said that he, this could have tanked his career too. And he said, I don't give a shit. I want to go be an actor. Here's my, my point on this. And I'll jump in before you, you take over Captain Cash. I do think this is pure uncut, 100% Colombian Nick Cage. And I think you see a little bit of this pure low role in every other Nick Cage movie you see. Like this, I think, is where he really got into his own head figured out what he wanted to do and then everything after this is just an iteration of peter Lowe. i don't know that it is the height of cage if that makes sense this is this is raw cage i give you that because like clearly he is making very strong decisions and fully committing to those decisions but ultimately they don't work in the same way that especially things like Face Off or Spider-Verse or the other films where Nick Cage is Nick Cage work. So, I mean, in, in one sense, this is Nick Cage at his greenest doing his most Nick Cage. But I think as you sort of look further into his career, he gets better at making decisions that make sense within the film that he's in. That comes with experienced directors too, because I know no, sure that's true. There are scenes that someone, you know, later in his career, he works with Scorsese, who directed this guy's first script. Right, Scorsese would be like, mm, "Not yet," or "Not there." We're ramping up here. You can't do this now, and you're less manic. Twenty minutes yeah. later. No, that's a great point because Nick Cage is full one hundred percent Nick Cage through this whole thing there's not a lot of va- like i mean he'll modulate his voice and he'll do different things but it's fully crazy the entire time yeah, yeah he's at no point is he a real human he's never normal and as i mentioned earlier it's like you just wouldn't believe that this guy has this position of authority yeah, or, or any job ever because he's re- yeah. really strange like he's a serial killer yeah, he he's has the very weird guy in the office. Bizarre tendencies. He's like Milton Wadams in Office Space. He'd be working in the basement. He wouldn't be. He wouldn't have a corner office, and he wouldn't be making executive decisions. I think that's kind of part of the joke, though, too. Well, I, it definitely is. It's it, a. It's a huge like. Hey, it's a white privilege thing. It's a New York yuppie thing. It's a do nothing job. He's just kind of shuffling paperwork and bossing around a secretary and playing like he's a big shot and to the point i think that's kind of the joke this literary agent it's like he's not really a big shot but he's got this little fiefdom he can rule over and he abuses it it is a lot about abuse of power and also the majority of people in power got to power by basically uh, taking credit for the work done by the people that work below them yeah there's a lot of that in here yeah but okay so Let's keep things moving here, folks. Captain Cash, Mr. Wizard, here is my Joe Bob Briggs driving breakdown for this movie. It contains a mechanical bat, flash dance side boob, vampire conversion by dry humping, desk jumping, mimes, corporate indifference to sexual harassment, aggressive alphabet recitals, cockroach eating, pigeon eating, under furniture sleeping, <laughs> the <pigeon. laughs> plastic fangs, a legit disturbing rape suicide attempt scene, and two murders, maybe? 
question mark? Yeah. I mean, you don't really know. At the end, he could just be in the nut house. Yeah. I mean, um, I'll say it again, guys. This movie is pure metaphor. It's all about Peter's inability to connect with women and form healthy relationships. He's drawn to this vampire that destroys his ability to have normal relationships with anyone else. And in the end, the entire relationship is just a delusion. Am I wrong? I think that's kind of my breakdown here. No, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. Mm. I mean, yeah. we mentioned it uh, over and over. There, there's a lot of things in here that are actually smart and actually uh, relevant commentaries on the real world. Yeah, are they executed the best all the time. No, no. I, I will say this movie is particularly well equipped to handle some of the social ills that it addresses considering it came out in 1989 i feel like this is a pretty progressive movie it doesn't solve any of the problems but it addresses them it highlights them and i think it portrays them in a very real way like it highlights things that are problematic in a very progressive way for 1989 which adds to the darkness of the movie i'll agree that it it highlights them but i don't think it does anything to say how wrong it is like it it only it only pays lip service to hey this is probably wrong but it doesn't offer anything in the way of no and you and instead of it's not but it's not meant to but it's not Mm -hmm. meant to that's the whole point it's just this is a snapshot this is what life is like moving on i want to ask you guys about your most memorable scene or line in the movie and this is not an easy one for me because this movie is just full of meme material uh, but I think by far my favorite line in the movie, and it's probably not on your list, but I enjoyed this one thoroughly. I was in Mortal Kombat with a fucking bat. Give me a break. Oh, just the voice. I, I just I hear it in the voice. And Jesus did, did, Christ. Did, did I nail that? I feel like I nailed that. I felt very. Cage- no, no, you're, you're, you're doing you're at peak cage, sir. And here's my close number two. I got to take a piss. Uh, the museum. That, so yeah. m- listen, my my line Captain from Cash, this. What you got? My line from this is, I'm taking your shit. Practice your your one man show somewhere else, because at, at once that is the most New York thing you could expect that someone is doing their their they're running their lines for their practice fucking show in the bathroom. And yes. that's, that, to me, was the purest comedy that comes out of this movie, where the, the movie, like, acknowledges, no, no, we get this is fucking crazy. Let's all have a brief chuckle. And it's all about the banality of evil, right? It's like, you just assume that whatever that guy's doing isn't for real. Yes. He's a, he's a clown show. Now, and he is, but he also rapes and murders at least two people. I'll share my Yike. favorite scene first, because my favorite line is not from my favorite scene. The, the most poignant scene in the movie is him walking down the street covered in blood with a makeshift steak, muttering to himself and talking to a wall as New Yorkers walk by him, not noticing. Because let's face it, like a lot of times when some crazy man is on the street, nobody pays them any mind. They just want to get away from him. Those were real New Yorkers. They did yes. not tell them they were filming this. They that was guerrilla filmmaking. By, they just walked by him, 
Like, get me Motherfucker, have you guy. been to New York? Yeah. It, They're but, crazy fucking people. The best thing well, you can do is leave them the fuck alone. Well, that's that was the that, sixth craziest thing that, that day yeah, that those people That's saw. what makes that feel so real and in the moment. And it's it, he does really well. But the best line of the movie, it's actually quite long, is when he is basically talking down to Alva again. And he's like, Alva, there's no one else in this entire office that could possibly ask to share such a horrible job. You're the lowest on the totem pole here, Alva. The lowest. Do you realize that? Every other secretary here has been here longer than you, Alva. Everyone. And even if there was someone here who was here even one day longer than you, I still wouldn't ask that person to partake in such a miserable job as long as you were around. That's all right, Alva. It's horrible, horrible job. Sifting through old contract after old contract. I couldn't think of a more horrible job if I wanted to. And you have to do it. You have to or I'll fire you. Do you, do you understand? Do you? Good. Capitalism. <laughs> I didn't do that at all justice, but... No, it was pretty good. It was pretty good, but all I wanted to know, Mr. Wizard, am I getting through to you? <laughs> Listen, that, that tirade that you were just treated to by the Thunderous Wizard is where you get the meme you don't say from. That actually never gets spoken in this entire film. But the face cage pulls when he says what a shit job Miss Alva has is where you get. You don't say. His facial expressions in this movie are epic. It's, it's, they it's are. Just, it's, it is. His face is elastic, man. He might be the real life plastic man. That's all I'm saying. He is all over the place. Like, how does he bug his tragedy. eyes like that? It's tragedy, Jim Carrey. He, no, he bugs his eyes for that entire tirade that the thunderous wizard just gave us. Like that that wild eyed <sighs> meme photo. No, that's not a that's not just like a one second screenshot or a split second screenshot. His eyes are that bugged that entire time. It's it's insane. He looks you deranged. Can, you yeah. cannot say he didn't make decisions and commit to them. Nope. That's nope. a thing that happened. 110%. All right. Well, with that in the bag, that brings us to our Vampire's Kiss trivia challenge. Gentlemen, are you ready? I actually, I feel like I'm going to lose this, but let's dance. Not the floor, Alva. Me. Shoot me. Yes, I'm right. Yeah, so we've got our standard format, fellas. It's five questions, multiple choice, and the winner gets a set of fancy ceramic vampire teeth. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, Captain Cash really wants these. These stakes are super high, and just for the record, I'm going to have another swig here of some bat squatch because whew, it's going to be tough to get to the end of this pod. Stick with <laughs> us, leaders. Bat. There we go. Stick with us, listeners. Bat squatch. Hashtag bat squatch. And you know what? I'm a little disappointed because usually when I do these questions, I feel like I've dug up some interesting nuggets about the movie and I'm a sucker for the casting. What ifs? But this time you guys research this movie entirely too thoroughly. So I just like to point out to the listeners right now that regardless of what these two ding dongs say, they were interested in this movie. They actually put in some effort because they've already hit on a couple of topics that I thought I was going to be able to sneak into these questions, and they've already addressed them. So kudos to you, Captain Cash and Thunderous Wizard. You guys really did your 
vampire's kiss homework and i appreciate that let the record show that i love this movie yeah so i i i I think we'll probably have a clear winner here in these and the answers are going to come fast and furious and the buzz in phrase tonight is you don't say can you guys handle that you don't say even though it's not the movie but it's because of the meme sure memeing it up fair enough fair enough i'm going with it don't question it number one nick cage didn't want beals to play the role of rachel that's the sexy lady vampire who did he prefer was it a one of my favorites joey lauren adams or b annette benning C, Patricia Arquette, or D, Sean Young? I'm a vampire. You don't say. That's going to go to Captain Cash. It was Patricia Arquette. Thank you. Yeah. His girlfriend at the time. Exactly. He's like, hey, get my girlfriend. Which, here, fun fact, uh, Roseanne Arquette was in After Hours, Jonathan Minion's first movie. Weird. Weird Arquette connection. She's basically the star of that. Rosanna. Toto, the song, they wrote it about her. Come on. Get with it. Don't look what? at me like that, Captain K. Af- Africa? Oh, they sang Africa, yes. down in But that's not about Rosanna, as you may guess. <laughs> so moving on to number two. Cage was not the first pick for the lead role in this movie. Who was? Was it A, Bill Murray, B, Dennis Quaid, C, Judd Nelson, or D, Charlie Sheen. You don't say. It's Mr. Wizard. Dennis Quaid. That is correct. Dennis Quaid was originally attached, which helped the producers secure the financing for the movie. And, fun fact, Jed Nelson was offered the role after Cage backed out initially, but they turned him down because he wanted a $1 million salary. Yeah. and Holy he, shit. He would have yep. butchered this role. I'm sorry, Jed Nelson. But no, it's not happening. He would have made this movie cost 30% more. Do you know why? 33% uh, more. Dennis Quaid dropped out. No. Yes, yes. Dennis Quaid dropped out because he was filming Inner Space. Inner Space. With uh, Martin Short I mean, and his wife at the time. Or maybe they weren't married yet, but Meg Ryan's in it. Okay, so right now, Captain Cash, the score is one to one. Mr. Wizard. That was an excellent move on question number two, but that brings us to question number three. Cage claims he only made one change to the script, and it involved the cockroach-eating scene. What was his character originally supposed to do? Was it A, eat a spider, B, eat raw steak, C, suck an egg, or D, eat a stray cat? You don't don't say. say... Ooh, I'm sorry, Captain Cash, but that thunderous wizard chimed in first. It was sucking egg. It was sucking egg. It was sucking egg. It was Cage's idea to eat the cockroach, and he did how many takes? Two takes. One. Two. One take. Really Two shit. Takes. And they Two. used the first take. He was not happy because he uh, was not. Uh, he was afraid of cockroaches. Yes. Go ahead, Mr. Wizard. Please. Yeah. So educate us. They made him do the second take. Just to be sure, and he, I mean, there's, that is legit uh, disgust on his face. My bigger question is, you presume they cleaned the cockroaches, right? Or well, they just he, grab he, here, one and... Eh? He, here's the thing. 
Um, we'll take a small aside. Nicholas Cage basically made three really weird and dangerous requests on this movie that I'm aware of. The first one was he actually wanted a real bat for that opening scene. Yep. And they had to convince him that, like, no, bats have rabies. It's not <laughs> worth the risk. And he's like, well, but what do you mean? Like, can't we get, like, good bats? Like, and he had a production assistant go behind the director's back and, like, procure some Mexican bats. They were going to FedEx to the set. And then the director caught wind of it and basically stopped it and said, Nick, you understand, like, if you get bit by one of these, you might die. He's like, oh, okay, never mind. I, but hold so, on. They, they had a rabies vaccine back then. He, yeah, but, he was just but, trying but, to but, fool but, them. The director's I mean, he like, would die, but... I, I don't want to deal with the fucking bat, Nick. Fuck you. That was like the – he drew the line there. Like, the accent, the, the jumping on the desk, whatever you want to do, go nuts. But we're not getting a fucking bat. So yeah. they had to, they had to like talk Nick out of that. The the second one was this uh, cockroach thing. He basically went to the director and said, "Here's the thing I'm the most scared of. I hate cockroaches. So if you want me to look super like distraught on screen, that's the thing I need to eat. Forget the egg. I want a cockroach." And they're like, "He's like brilliant, brilliant, Nick. You're a genius. Brilliant. We're gonna we're gonna get you a cockroach because that sounds awesome." And again, he called it a water bug, and that's a palmetto bug in the south, whatever. But the uh, the girlfriend of the writer, uh, Barbara, whatever her name was, was like, wait a minute, but like bugs are nasty. Like, you can't let your star in the movie eat a bug. It might kill him or something. Can you call a doctor? So they did. They literally called a doctor. And the doctor said, no, he can eat a bug. It's fine. Um, but I'd probably chase it with some whiskey just in case. So Give it a couple squirts of whiskey. You're good. Yeah. So true story, Nick ate the, the cockroach twice and chased it with 100-proof vodka each time. Wow. Fact. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, then, and, of course, then there's the blank thing with the, the gun in his mouth. Um, yeah, they had to convince Nick Cage not to kill himself to film that scene. Okay. It's only so, five years that, before blank killed Brandon Lee. So. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, well, it wouldn't have been the bound up. It was just the pressure. The pressure. No, nah, yeah, the pressure will. I mean, in your mouth, not that Brandon yes. Lee was shot from that close. It was just the gun was too packed. It, it was jammed, yeah. The ca- casing hit him. So anyway, okay, folks. So that brings our score to two to one. Thunderous Wizard, you are in the lead. That brings us to question number four. And although Cage did not ad lib any of his lines in the movie, he did make one performance decision that cost the production a sizable amount of money. What was it? Was it a? He demanded that he wore a freshly pressed suit before every take. B, he hummed a licensed song during a scene. C, he required all of the food be catered from a Transylvanian-owned deli. Or D, he demanded that a Catholic priest and a rabbi bless the set before every scene. You don't you say. You don't say. Damn it. It's, Captain Cash, you are just too slow tonight. Mr. Wizard, the question the, goes uh, to you. It's the license music. It was what, Straczynski uh, and... They still held the rights to the music. It cost them ten grand or something like that. That is absolutely correct. Cage hums Stravinsky's Petrus, Petrushka. It's a ballet, apparently, after his first hookup with Rachel, the sexy lady vampire, which, uh, yeah, uh, Stravinsky's estate charged 10K for. And so the director was pissed. Yeah. Here's the, my question. How expensive would it be to get Nick Cage in a recording booth and just have him fucking hum anything else? 
My, what do you mean? My question is, how did they see this movie? <laughs> Nobody else saw it. How would they know? Yeah. You know, you know why? It's because there's fucking attorneys that, that like, watch oh, that shit like fucking yeah. hawks because they get a cut of it. That's why. They're like, we got to get the rights to this. Way to go. Because they don't yeah. want to take it out because apparently he did it like off the cuff and so well. I, I think it was completely garbage that they could have edited that shit out. Again, that's that's like the one thing you could have reined Nick Cage in on this movie. It wouldn't have affected it at one bit. It's like, hey, can you just like fucking hum Yankee Doodle Dandy? Thanks. See, you say that, and we've already discussed how the director's like, yeah, you know, they, no real They bats. only paid Nick Cage 40K for this movie, and they had to spend 10K so he could hum 10 seconds of a song. Not a great investment. I'm just saying. One fourth no, of the salary. That's fair. Yeah. It's like, I, hey, hey, Nick, I'll give you five grand not to do it. Cool. Okay. Moving on. Uh, so I hate to say this, but much like the Cincinnati Bengals, Captain Cash, you are statistically eliminated from the playoffs here. But thank you for playing, and we appreciate your enthusiasm. Listen, I I was close every time. I just wasn't fast enough. Yeah. Well, I, it's clear to me who enjoyed this movie more. I'll just That's say fair. that. Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. So for pride and just a flex on the Thunderous Wizard's knowledge of this fantastic film, here's question number five. As previously stated, Cage was only paid $40,000 for the role. What did he buy with his check? You don't say. Hey, I mean, by the way, yeah. We, we already talked about yeah, this. Yeah, I know. He bought a yeah. he bought a Corvette Stingray. But, but my my answers are super funny, so I'm going to read them anyway. Okay. Was enough. it a? Let's hear them. Yep. Was it a? One of the Superman costumes from Superman Two. That would actually also be a believable thing, but it would have cost way more than forty grand. In eighty eighty nine. Eighty nine. Yeah. I, mean, I think so. I mean, the first comic is, is like a million dollars, right? So. Yeah, but but it's Superman two. It's not one for Superman one. I'm sure there's a well, bunch of them. anyway. It's not Superman four either. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fuck you. Okay, so or was it B a down payment on an Eastern European castle, or C a portrait of himself styled as Nosferatu? I would love. Or that. D a sports car. <laughs> I would hang that on my wall. Yeah. I feel like the answer for E would have been whatever Elvis's bride price for Marie Presley was. Uh, so as short no, as their marriage was, he just got out of a marriage that lasted four days. So, <laughs> so anyway, Captain Cash again, my condolences, sir. Better luck next, next time. Thunderous Wizard, you are tonight's Vampire's Kiss Trivia Challenge champion, and uh, I will get you some ceramic vampire teeth, maybe, I don't know, just keep an eye out for Which it. Which I will then so, re-gift to Captain Cash, yeah. one of his many bizarre pursuits. I can, <laughs> can make vampire teeth, I don't need them made from ceramic, that's aggressive. So, which is again, that's a joke from the movie because he can't afford the ceramics; he buys the plastics. Okay, and they're only so, like nineteen dollars. Work perfectly well. Yeah, so they're they're great for the murdering. Um, I've got a couple opening questions here. I mean, we've kind of beaten this movie to death, but did this movie? And this is the one I love to ask every time: Did this movie deserve to flop? I'm gonna sort of amend this question for us because I think deserve to flop as. Maybe, uh, are you surprised it flopped? 
which the answer is obviously no because this movie is incredibly strange and it came out in the middle of the summer full of big blockbuster fun movies why the hell would you go see this you know why like, oh should i go see batman or ghostbusters 2 or this movie where nicholas cage UHF? jumps on a desk and yells at somebody yeah, no, this this is a fall movie. They should have released this in the fall to capture any weird cross-promotional interest from Halloween, clearly. Agreed. There's... And, and this movie's not terrible, but I, I will say this. It didn't deserve to flop, but I kind of buy what you're, you're selling here, Mr. Wizard. There's really no good way to market this movie. No. I, so It's well, an art house in, in the form that it comes in, there's no package you put this in that just goes, yes, that will sell. Uh, so I'll be the dissenting voice here. Yes, it deserved to flop. Okay. This is a movie that makes a lot of really bold choices. None of them hang together. That's ultimately the problem I have. And I've, I've said it repeatedly, but like, again, Nick Cage is full on crazy in this thing. And I'm he's acting his dick off. I'm not sure it's in service of the film or the story they're trying to tell, but he is definitely trying for something. And just remember, that's a dick that can only get up when bathed in hot yogurt. Hot yogurt. Hot yogurt. Hot, yogurt. Uh, hot, hot yogurt. I guess we yeah, should I elaborate on that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, that shame on me because I teased that we talk about that. For the record, folks, listeners, here's the most bizarre. Okay, pull it back for a second. Okay. This, superlatives this is, of most bizarre on this film are really difficult to do. But another weird thing is... Yeah, no, I think it's fair to say in a movie that is full of supremely weird things, both on the camera and behind the camera, okay, that by far the weirdest thing I read about this movie... And it's not the easiest thing to find either. It's kind of like it's out there, but it's not like one of the headlining like Wikipedia entries on the movie, apparently. And I believe this to be completely true because it seems to be substantiated by the people on, that worked on the movie that for Nicolas Cage to get into the right mindset, to get into the mood for his sex scenes with sexy vampire uh, Rachel, which is Jennifer Beale's flash dance. He had to have hot yogurt poured over his feet. So when you watch the love scenes, if you can call those love scenes, where he's dry humped by the side boob of sexy lady vampire Rachel, their feet are out of frame. Because if you were to actually see the filming, you would see the two of them like gyrating on the bed while some poor, poor underpaid production assistant is pouring microwaved yogurt over the naked toes of Nicolas Cage. According to the folks that worked on the movie, that was the only way Cage could get in the mood to shoot the love scenes. I, I really feel like he just hit, either it's like a sick joke or he's got a weird yogurt thing. Like, is there's no other way to explain that. This that to me, the, one of the weirdest pieces of information I've ever gained in my lifetime. This is this to me is the no green M&Ms in the bowl clause where it it's not a matter that uh, that someone actually cares that they're green M&Ms or not. It's just a flex to see, can I get them to do this? Because what is the what is the discovery phase for, you know, what really gets me off and makes me feel like I'm in the mood? Hot yogurt poured on my feet. 
Okay, now hold on. The green M&M's thing gets blown out of proportion. It's legit. I can tell you why right now. I love telling this story. So no, here's no, the l- thing. listen. I'm not saying it it doesn't have a reason. I'm just saying well, j- just just for the younger pod listeners that might not be aware of what you're describing. Van Halen was famous for having a, a, a writer, a contract writer. In other words, they had like a standard set of conditions that had to be met for them to perform at a venue. And it was long and lengthy and exhaustive. They had to have a bunch of shit. So, you know, we had like eight bottles of Jack Daniels in the dressing room. You had to have so many bottles of water, blah, 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 blah. And we had to have this many green M&Ms put into a bowl or no brown M&Ms, whatever. No brown M&Ms. Something to that effect. So it was like, uh, we want a bowl of M&Ms with one of the colors completely removed. Okay, the reason they put that in there is because they had a concert once where they went and they showed up and the guys wired their sound system incorrectly and they got electrocuted. And they're like, what the fuck? You guys didn't follow the instructions. They're like, well, yeah. So I said, okay, well, let's put in something so specific and bizarre and weird that we'll know whether or not you actually read our instructions or not. And that was the thing they put in there was the M&Ms. So if they showed up and the M&Ms were wrong, they said, check everything. You obviously didn't read what we sent you because you didn't get the M&Ms right. So that means that the wiring and the setup could be wrong. And we're not going to risk our lives to get electrocuted because you guys didn't follow instructions. So they just, they weren't just being prima donna dickheads. They're actually saying like, hey, we should make sure somebody read this all the way through before they freaking set up our gear. Yeah, no. So, but. But that being said, the freaking yogurt thing, goddamn bizarre. It's definitely a flex, though. Yeah, my, my point on that is simply, do I get to do whatever what I want? Whatever I want? Really whatever I want? Because any... Okay. I would ask for more money. Any actor will I tell wouldn't, you... I wouldn't have done this for uh, 40K in yogurt. I would have done this for, like, you know, 100K in no yogurt. And been like, that was a better flex. Any actor will will tell you or uh, for the most part like those anytime they have to shoot a love scene it's the antithesis of uh it's it's just embarrassing because you're surrounded by people so you're not getting uh, jazzed up to go out there and have a have a romantic love scene like you're filming this in front of like a hundred cast and crew and it's weird unless you're an exhibitionist also the whole point of her love scenes is that she's always on top of him and i read this somewhere and that's to show, like, he's not in control. Yeah. Well, he's, and submiss- he's submissive with her, which he's always, you know, he yeah. he has no respect for women. And then he's in this position with her, and it's, and it's totally flip-flopped. Anyways. Okay. So we've already covered whether or not we felt this movie should have flopped. And it got a little weird, um, just like the movie. But did this movie, in your opinion, ultimately achieve what it set out to? I think it like, uh, absolutely did. Yeah. I, I think I, it told the weird story it wanted to tell. It it attacked the uh, problems that it associated with society in the ways it wanted to. And uh, obviously the biggest thing is it, it wasn't a hit. I think if you wrote this movie and you were under the assumption that it would be a hit, that's a little naive. But it's a cult classic. People People watch this all the time now. It's talked about still to this day. I mean, what else could you ask for? You made a really fucking weird movie that went for it. You cast Nicolas Cage, who was in the start of his career, but certainly he was looked at as going to be a big star in Hollywood. And he's remembered for it. Uh, the whole reason the movie is still remembered is because of him. 
yeah. So again, don't agree. I, I I think to say this movie set out to make the film it wanted to make, it need to have a coherent enough vision to say, hey, this is what we're making, which I I just don't see. I, I agree that it's mimetic, and I agree that it's a cult classic, mostly because they let Nick Cage be as crazy as he wanted to before he had any sense to know what worked and didn't work and just understood, hey, if I do this, it's fucking crazy. Just remember, he performed this way, but they changed one element of the script, and that was him eating cockroaches. It was written this way, too. I, I don't think that's entirely... And he just played it really well. Because guess what? Judd Nelson would have made this a shithole of a movie. I'm sorry, Judd Nelson. It's just true. But Nick Cage was also given freedom to interpret the character as he wanted to. So he said the words on the page, but he delivered them in a fashion that he deemed fit. Again, I mentioned this before the pod, and I'm glad I remembered it now, because this to me... I'm not going to wholesale agree with Captain Cashier, but to a certain degree, I'm going to give him some credit. And I will agree that there is one aspect of this movie that really didn't work for me. There's a lot of choices made by Nicolas Cage, and there's a lot of choices that the director allowed him to make and okayed and greenlit, and he's ran with. And I think the movie's actually better for most of them. But there is one. There is one that I don't think worked, and it's the accent. I will say this. I enjoyed the eccentric dialogue, but I think at times that weird, nonsensical, amorphous accent that he tries to use actually takes away from some of the scenes. His overacting makes sense in the context of the manic nature of his mental health spiral. And I also understand there's hints of silent movie acting and the melodramatic nature of that in play he was making that conscious decision to over act in a physical nature and i'm fine with that but it's that weird off-putting accent at times like that to me is the one thing it's like if that was cleaned up the movie would be just a notch more serious and a notch more respectable in my opinion i mean that, that might be true yeah that that might be true i, I think Ultimately, it's a lot harder to take him serious when he's doing that. You know, you guys, this is my voice, and I'm I'm going to do some dark material, especially when, as previously mentioned, you don't at least get the mask slip where you see that this is a thing that's put upon. A facade, yeah. Yeah. So to your point, Captain Cash, and to further my point, yeah, He'd already been criticized once before for a role in Peggy Sue Got Married. Is that check out? Yeah, Kathleen Turner wanted basically uh, Coppola to fire him. Yeah, which was he wanted Coppola is his uncle to fire him. Yeah, yeah, because he delivered a strange vocal performance. I think again, I understand the risk he took here, and it's not the worst thing, but to me, that's the one choice that probably does negatively impact the movie. Because it's just it's just inconsistent and, in the end, kind of nonsensical. Yeah, it, like, Con Air is him doing an accent badly. This is him just doing a weird fucking thing that no one talks like. Yeah, and in Con Air, he does it badly and consistently through the whole movie. Right. That accent is worse. 
I mean, it's I, worse, I'm not, but it's consistent. It, it's it's not, worse. It doesn't stick out. Yeah, it's it's worse in the sense that that's not how Cajun people talk, but it's better in the sense that I at least understand Nick Cage is attempting to show me this is his version of how Cajun people talk. This film is an accent that no one speaks like, and no one has this cadence, so I don't have any kind of, like, base level of, what is he doing? Yeah. It, it, it is fantastically bizarre, but it does, I think, detract from the movie. Mm. Yeah. Hey, and, and cheers to that. I'll, I'll crack one more beer to this fucking weird-ass movie. At a minimum, this pod is at a three-beer rating. Still half of what you would need to enjoy this film. Yes. All right. Well, I think that basically sums up what I had hoped to address tonight, gentlemen. That brings us to our recommendations segment. Who would like to start first? Captain Cash? I'll jump right in. The floor is yours. So I had to think about this, but conveniently... Netflix recently released a film that is also set in New York, is mildly fantastic, semi-magical, and also stars an outlandish, insane, intense performance uh, by an otherwise well-known character actor, and that is Uncut Gems. If you have not seen this thing, it is Adam Sandler playing a Diamond District jewel dealer uh, and his interactions basically as a tremendous gambling addict as he tries to wheel and deal his way through the most insane gambling ploy ever. Also, Kevin Garnett stars and is wildly a very good actor. Uh, so He's a charismatic take, guy. Really, take two hours or change. I think it's 2.15 or something. Of your time, if you have Netflix, and watch Uncut Gems. It it was really good. I second that. Now, my recommendation, I'm going with all Cage recommendations throughout Summer Rage with Nicolas Cage. I started with Valley Girl. Today, I'm going to choose Bringing Out the Dead, which was directed by Martin Scorsese. I did that to pair it up with, because Minion's first script was directed by Scorsese. And it yep. is Nicholas Cage as a burned-out paramedic who is seeing the ghosts of the patients he failed to save. And he's a guy at the end of his rope. Surprise, surprise. All Nicholas Cage's best performances are guys at the end of their rope. Uh, it's good. Uh, it's a different type of Scorsese movie. Often people cr- criticize Martin Scorsese for solely making gangster movies. It's not a gangster movie. Patricia Arquette's also in it. Uh, Vic Rames. Weird. Tom Sizemore. Uh, John Goodman, you will enjoy it. It is free on Amazon Prime, which we forgot to mention. So is Vampire's Kiss. Fair enough. And I was debating on what I was going to recommend tonight. I had two options. I was going to go with either uh, From Beyond or Chud. Because I wanted to go with like weird 80s horror movies. Um, and I did not go with Chud. You should have. But I should have. I might save that for later. Fun fact, Chud is John Goodman's big screen debut. He plays a cop in Chud. 
That's, that's a fact, folks. That is hard. <laughs> he does yeah. schlubby authority figure well. Well, it's actually a very minor role. He appears about two way, two thirds of the way through the movie, and shows up in a diner, hits on the waitress, and then gets murdered by a chud. Off screen, as you do, as you do, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to go with uh, another '80s low budget horror movie, 1986, From Beyond. It's a Lovecraftian-inspired body horror movie with an above-average special effects, you know, budget. And uh, it stars none other than Jeffrey Herbert West Combs and his reanimator co-star, Barbara. I was burned alive in Chopping Mall, Crampton. Um, and much like Chopping Mall, this was a VHS cover that really caught my eye as a kid. It was like a face, like, being, like, stretched to the side. If you can, you, do you remember that? It was like a weird face with like the cheek being pulled away from it. And I was like, Oh man, that movie looks so badass. I want to know what it's, what that thing is. And it's a really small movie. It's super, super low budget, but much like this movie, it's relatively smart. It's got some subversive sex themes and yeah, it's an adaptation of a Lovecraft short story of the same name from beyond. And you got you got the the two starring cast members from the Reanimator. So who doesn't love that? So yeah, check it out, guys. It, I think it's uh, streaming free, like on Hulu and Comcast right now. And yeah, if you're gonna watch Vampires Kissed, cleanse your palate with After or from uh, From Beyond. Excuse me. Uh, bonus wreck. Color out of space. Lovecraftian inspired. Film oh, starring yeah. Nicolas Cage, yeah, and directed mm-hmm. by Richard Stanley of uh, Island of Dr. Moreau Infamy, who basically yep. fired from that project, disappeared for a number of years. It's very good, just came out last year. Yeah, it, that's streaming anywhere. Uh, you gotta rent it still. Uh, no, and the, the cool thing about that movie and that short story, I guess. It's it's similar to From Beyond in the sense that it involves like extrasensory perception. A color because, has never been seen before. Right, and and From Beyond is like a part of the brain is like the third eye, and it can sense things that are otherworldly and, and the, like brain wears. It's it's a great body horror movie, and yeah, anyway, yeah, it all comes full circle, all right. folks. Uh, so next up on. Summer Rage with Nicolas Cage. Captain Cash, it is your film. So what are we doing? Drive angry. But remember, don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. But we're going to drive angry. 